Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to finish out this chapter and actually the next uh, this morning as we see God's deliverance of his people. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we invite you to take uh, a copy from the pew rack there in front of you. It's page 291. Page 291. And if you don't have a copy that you uh, can read or keep at home, we'd love for you to have uh, that copy there. Keep it, take it with you, read it, and get to know the Lord better uh, that way. So as we're here in 2 Kings, we'll be at the end of the chapter, picking up in verse 24, and we'll see this central truth that God always delivers on his promises. God always delivers on his promises. So reading now, 2 Kings 6, verse 24. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in the land as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. Then on the next day I said to her, Give your son, that we may eat him. But she's hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Well, by mid-February of this year, Vladimir Putin had summoned some 190,000 troops sitting on the borders of Ukraine. Uh, This last Thursday, March 24th, marked the one-month anniversary of the actual invasion of Ukraine, when tens of thousands of soldiers went in and are still wreaking destruction on that country today. We sit here in a similar moment in the life of Israel. The Syrians for a long time have threatened war, sending raiding parties, and after a brief cessation of hostilities following last week's passage, now it's time. They're entering the land in full force and invading Israel. And it's the context of this invasion that forms the cradle of the story we have today. God's people need deliverance. Jehoram is king in Israel, his reign plagued by famine, a sign of judgment from the Lord. So when Ben-Hadad besieges Samaria, it exacerbates an already existing situation. In other words, the people didn't have much food to begin with, and now they're in this siege. A siege, of course, is just a military operation where an army surrounds a city or an area and won't let anyone or anything in or out. The people are starving. They're attempting to starve the city into submission, and they need deliverance from starvation. So we've got two things going on here in this paragraph. First is an explanation of the effects of this siege, okay, what's happening. And the second is a story that illustrates those effects and tells us just how bad it was. So verse 25 sets up the explanation. There was a great famine until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Well, how much meat is there on a donkey's head? Not much. Well, to make matters worse, for the Israelites, Leviticus 11 forbids the eating of donkeys. 
Yet the people find themselves in a setting where money is less precious than food. 80 shekels for this donkey's head is roughly two pounds of silver. A cab is about a quart. A quarter of a quart, as you know, is a cup. We're talking roughly two ounces of silver here for a cup of dove's dung. An alternate reading places this as a cup of beans, which may be the more likely reading. In either case, the people are starving. And this starvation leads to a rather grotesque story that we read beginning in verse 26. A woman cries out for help, king, help me. And this king, and not particularly noted for his compassion, asks in verse 7, if the Lord won't help you, how can I help you? I mean, it's not like I'm sitting on a store of grain on the threshing floor, or there's not wine sitting in the wine press. I'm not sitting on an unserved store of food. No one has anything worth eating. But the king gets beyond his complaint in verse 27 and asks, or 28 and asks her, so what's your trouble? And here we see that the nation needs deliverance not only from starvation, but also from evil. Well, this story is hard to read. The descriptions are pretty clear. What's happening is pretty devastating. As the people are starving, they grow more and more desperate. 1846, Manifest Destiny, the uh, U.S. is spreading westward. And during this westward expansion, a group of almost 90 people left Missouri, headed west on the Oregon Trail ended up heading toward California. As they neared California, they attempted to press through the Sierra Nevada mountains. But winter came early that year, and the group was soon stuck and delayed. No help could reach them. The first relief party couldn't come for four months. Uh, this group we know today as the Donner Party. If you've heard of the Donner Party, the survivors, almost 40, almost half the group died, and the survivors survived by consuming those who had already passed. In fact, today there's a park and a monument there because it was such a grotesque story that it lives on in infamy today. The Donner Party. It was no party. But what we have described in 2 Kings 6 is actually much worse. And those in the Donner Party survived through those who had already died. This Israelite woman and her companions are guilty of murder and cannibalism. And if you think about it, why is she mad? She's mad because she can't murder again and eat someone else's son after murdering her own. Whew, what a picture of the depths of evil that we can sink to apart from Christ. I mean, the good news is, we sit here in the enlightened 21st century. We are much too sophisticated to engage in anything of this sort, right? I mean, we would never propose something like the Pregnant Persons Freedom Act of 2022. A Maryland bill that not only further entrenches abortion, but legally permits the death of children through neglect or starvation up to 28 days after birth. What evil? 
When you, when you read a story about a woman boiling and eating her child, something turns over inside you. Stories like this one or the bill in Maryland give new meaning to the phrase in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. And yes, as God's people, we need to be delivered from the evil around us. But if we're honest before the Lord, we also know we need to be delivered from the evil inside us. And you might say, well, these are desperate times in 2 Kings. Well, fair enough. They are. It's a difficult situation. But the woman's not volunteering to sacrifice herself. They're devouring the defenseless. And you can tell far more about our values by how we care for the defenseless than how we honor the rich and powerful. We know more about how our society treats the voiceless than we do by what happens at the Oscars or the Emmys. This woman isn't consumed by grief over what she's done. She's consumed with resentment that she can't do it again. The same thing to someone else's child. Well, what's a proper response to something to evil like this? Well, it's repentance. So in verse 30, the king tears his clothes in what appears to be an act of repentance. The king tore his clothes and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. If you look at the king in this moment, you think there's a level of repentance going on. But this outward show isn't about repentance, it's about revenge. Verse 31, he doesn't repent but rather says, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. He's going to compound murder with more murder. So the king blames Elisha. But who's to blame? The people. But not just these people. Those who have rebelled against the Lord for generations. God promised this specific judgment in Deuteronomy 28. But... If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. They shall besiege you, and you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you. This is a fulfillment of the judgment of the Lord. I mean, this picture is dark. It's supposed to be dark. The text is painting a portrait of life apart from God. The passage Marcus read for us just a little while prints a future portrait of what awaits those who live apart from God. Darkness awaits all those who don't know Jesus. Jesus himself taught this in Matthew 22. He said, this is what happens to those who don't know me. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer what? Darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Darkness and judgment are the fate of all those who reject Jesus Christ. But remarkably, God himself provides a way out of this darkness. Matthew 27 gives us another picture of the horror of darkness and judgment. But this time someone is being judged. And when they had crucified Jesus, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, 
that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what is the answer? God forsook his son because of our sin. Jesus experienced the outer darkness. He experienced the horror of judgment. He experienced the horror of life apart from God because of us. And Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, bore the sin and judgment so we don't have to. Romans 3 tells us we're all sinners. And John 3 tells us because we're sinners, we are condemned already. We have no hope apart from God, and yet the darkness that Jesus adored there on the cross provides a way of escape, Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On them a light has shined. The actual darkness, the physical darkness that Jesus experienced at the crucifixion is a picture of our spiritual darkness apart from Christ. Christ bore the judgment the separation, the darkness, so that we might have life and light and family with God. If you're here this morning, apart from Jesus Christ, what awaits all those who reject Jesus is horror and darkness. But for those who turn from sin to Christ, there's unimaginable love and light and welcome and gladness and eternal joy. Would you turn from your sin and trust him? So now, back to Elisha. We saw last week he's delivered this king time after time, but he hasn't yet delivered him this time. Well, what in the world is Elisha up to while the country is being invaded? Let's pick up now in verse 32. Elisha was sitting in his house. Now, this kind of reminds me, you know, remember the, the story... The disciples are on the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. There's a storm around, and what's, what's Jesus doing? Sleeping. The city is being invaded, and Elisha is sitting in his house. And the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now, ironically, Elisha is the nation's only hope. I mean, not actually Elisha, but the one whom Elisha represents. The Lord is the nation's only hope. And Elisha represents his authority as he speaks his authoritative word. And where's Elisha? He's sitting in council with the elders of the city. There are at least some people that seemingly want to seek the Lord in this moment. But while this council is going on, the king sends a man to kill Elisha. But before the assassin arrives, Elisha knows he's coming and instructs them to block the door. But before they actually do that, in comes the assassin. Surprisingly, though, he doesn't kill Elisha. Rather, he just complains at the end of verse 33. The trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And here we have the heart of the king's accusation. Elisha the prophet represents Yahweh's authority. The king can't kill Yahweh the Lord, but he can kill his prophet. So his accusation is actually against God. He's taking his anger against God out on God's 
prophet. And there's some significant irony here. The king's right. This complaint is right. This judgment is from the Lord. But the nation's only hope for deliverance is also from the Lord. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. But the king hardened his heart. And here we have a beautiful picture of the gospel. We need to be saved not only from our sin, not only from death, but from the judgment of God for our sin. But the only one who can save us from divine judgment must be divine. God himself must save us from God. So Isaiah 59 declares, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. The Lord saw that there was no one and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm provided salvation. God had to provide salvation because we cannot save ourselves from God's judgment. Jesus Christ provides for us what we can't provide for ourselves. So not only is Elisha's life spared, but deliverance is promised. Let's pick up now in chapter 7, verse 1. But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel. And two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Well, into this war of words, warring kings, come once again the word of the Lord. Verse 1, hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord. This language, hear the word of the Lord, is the same language used in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It's the Shema, it means to listen. Why do we, people who have confessed faith and know that God reigns, why do we so often despair at world events? I mean, why does something happen thousands and thousands of miles away and create anxiety? Because we often spend more time listening to what the world has to say than what God himself says. Hear the word of the Lord. Listen to the character of God revealed in his word. Hear the good news that the king of kings will declare final victory over his enemies and make us part of that victory and rejoice. Listen to God's promises to those who are persecuted for being faithful and know that you will never walk alone. See the love of God for his people, the mercy of God for sinners, the grace of God for those who don't deserve it and rejoice. You see, as we spend time in God's word, we'll find ourselves being shaped and molded. Now, I'll see if I can dig this out. I borrowed a little uh, Play-Doh from my son this morning. And what, what is, what is Play-Doh? Play-Doh is something moldable, shapeable, right? If you, I, I've never been any good with it. I could basically make a snake in a ball. That's about it. But theoretically, if you're real good, my son's actually pretty good, you could make a lot of different things. Uh, you could make something that potentially could look like a human being. You know, if I pound my fist into it, it takes on the shape of my fingers. It conforms itself to whatever is shaping it. And the reality is 
that we imagine we're just cruising through life and we're just like these you know, automatons and all these things are bouncing off of us. But we are all being shaped. We are all being formed and, and molded into something. We've got how many hours in a week? 168. How many in a month? Roughly 730. And if you're a really faithful church member, you make it to church three times a month. So let's say you're here from 9 to noon for three Sundays. Nine hours. But the reality is there are a lot of professing Christians who make it once or twice a month. So we may be getting three, four, five, six hours of biblical instruction in a month. And maybe you're devoted, so you spend time in God's Word and personal group Bible study. So let's be optimistic and say, I don't know, another two to three hours a week. So we might be in the 12 to 15 hours a month range. Okay, fine. We've got sleeping, eating, working, family, all this other stuff, right? A lot of other things to spend our time on. Well, that's true. Well, what about social media? Well, statistics tell us that the daily average that Americans spend on social media is just under two and a half hours a day. Well, what about total media? That's more like six hours a day. If you check this out, it comes to something just under 175 hours in a month. You are being shaped. You are being molded. And the question for us as God's people is, what is shaping us? What is molding us? What are we being conformed to? You will either be shaped by the voices in this world, even if it's talk radio or your favorite news network, or you will be shaped by the voice of God speaking through his word. We will be conformed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God, or we will be conformed to something, some other message. And the most important voice is the voice of God speaking to us through His Word as we receive it in the gathered worship of a local church. We can't afford to be casual in our commitment to Christ. It's not a neutral thing. In our world, it's a radical thing and to be faithful in your commitment to corporate worship. It's radical to serve faithfully. It's radical to devote yourself to the Word of God. It's radical to give sacrificially. But what you find is that these practices, seemingly insignificant, one by one by one, over time will shape someone who looks like and is conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It's what Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you'll find out that as you devote yourself to the Word of God, your life is shaped by and looks like God's character because you are encountering the character of God in His Word. So the king's captain hears the Word of the Lord. He hears with his ears the promise, but he can't believe it. Verse 2. If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this actually happen? Well, the king, the captain, will see this fulfilled, but won't eat of the spoil. But we know what God promises he delivers. Deliverance is received, beginning in verse 3. Let's pick up there now. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, 
Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine's in the city and we'll die there. If we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And they came back and entered another tent. And carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we're hungry. Therefore, they've gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we'll take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent after them, them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. God rescues through the most unlikely people. Only a boy named David. Prophet in lion's den. A beaten, bloodied man hanging on a cross. God displays his glory by delivering through the most unlikely candidates. And it'd be hard to find four less likely candidates than these men in verse 3. There were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. So the lepers can't be in this city, according to Leviticus 13.46, because they're outcasts because they're leprosy. They have to be outside. So they're stuck in the gate. So they can't be out in their leper colony because the Syrians are out there. And they can't be in the city because they're not allowed in there. So they're stuck here. And ironically, the place they no doubt have always wanted to be in the city, they don't want to be anymore. If we go in there, we're going to starve to death like everyone in there. And so they think to themselves, they think, if we stay here, we're going to die. If we go in there, we're going to die. If we go out there, we just might die. So let's give it a shot. The Syrians, they find, have fled in a panic. The way is littered with garments and equipment that they threw away in their haste. Why? Because the Lord made the Syrians hear. Shema. The Lord made the army hear the sound of a great army. They never see any evidence that this is true. They imagine that the king of Israel has made an alliance with the Hittites and Egyptians. I mean, I love this. They're giving the king of Israel a lot more credit than he deserves. He ain't doing anything to get out of this. And they're like, oh no, he's got this army coming after us. And then, when deliverance comes, the king doubts that it actually comes. The lepers, they grab more than enough for themselves, and then 
it kind of pricked in their conscience. You know, like all those people back in Samaria, they are starving. So they said, verse 9, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news, literally glad tidings or gospel. When you get news like this, you don't keep it to yourself. So the lepers carry the news back to the city, still outcasts on the outside. So they still aren't allowed in, and they're on the outside, and they call out to the gatekeeper. When the king hears the news, he doubts, but he agrees to send messengers to check it out. So they go check it out, and sure enough, it's true. Hmm, map isn't there. We'll just pretend it was. All right. So they travel somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 miles one way. They're flying to get the word back to Samaria as quickly as possible. And now that the promised deliverance has been received, it is shared with everybody. Well, not quite everyone. There's one man who misses out. Let's pick up in verse 16. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel. And two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a seah of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him. For the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. So let's track back to verse 1 of this chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Tomorrow, a seah of fine flour sold for a shekel, two seahs of barley for a shekel. Now verse 16, a seah of fine flour sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley For a shekel. We've got these beautiful bookends. A seemingly impossible prediction, and a day later, it's all coming true. What if someone told you today that tomorrow you could buy a gallon of gas for 50 cents? Or a four by eight sheet of treated plywood for a buck? Bill Moody would tell you, you're crazy. Not possible. But that's exactly what happens in Samaria. And it's not the only promise to come true. As the king's captain, the one who doubts the word of the Lord, is standing in the gate, the stampeding crowds trample him. Every year, end of November, you hear of stories, some people trampled to death on Black Friday. You can imagine the energy of starving people rushing out of the city to get food, And get to the spoils first. The king's captain, dead. Food, now cheap. And it all happens, verse 16 tells us why. According to the word of the Lord. God's word, again, proves true. And as we look into the mirror of God's word, what does he show us? We're not guilty of cannibalism. But God's word pictures our unloving treatment of one another as spiritually cannibalistic behavior. This picture of darkness in Samaria sheds a different light for us on Galatians 5.15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by 
one another. We hear that and we sort of let it slide by. It's a figure of speech. Don't we hear about women boiling and eating their children and it shocks and horrifies us. So it's striking that Paul uses this cannibalistic language to describe how we treat one another. Gossip, slander, backbiting. They're just ways that Christians excuse cannibalizing one another. We devour someone's reputation behind their back. We bite and consume their joy by grumbling and complaining. These aren't small offenses. They're sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. And if God takes them seriously, we should too and repent of them. As Ephesians 4.29 puts it, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Is your speech a devouring or is it a gift to those who hear it? You see, destructive communication isn't just how we are. It's not, well, you know, you know, that's how it is around here. It's sin that deserves the judgment of God. Let's not cheapen Jesus' sacrifice for our sin by living as if it doesn't matter to him. Secondly, good news must be shared to do anyone any good. Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are those who preach the good, are the feet of those who preach the good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. Four lepers, outcasts, ugly people, set outside the gates of Samaria, not allowed inside the city walls. 24 hours later, they bring news that the entire city rejoices to hear. God rescues the city through outcasts. These lepers aren't beautiful, but this day of gospel, as they say in verse 9, is a beautiful day. What if these men, what if they kept the news to themselves? What if a child or a family or an elderly person starved to death? Well, they sat out in the camp stuffing themselves while people in the city died. Good news must be shared to be good. When the women saw the empty tomb on Sunday morning, they ran to tell the disciples, it's good news. How can we keep something so good to ourselves? How can you hear the antidote to cancer and keep it to yourselves? What if you knew someone right out there right now was sitting on it? And they could save lives, rescue families, heal individuals, and they kept it to themselves. Brothers and sisters, it's not a little light of mine. Jesus is the light of the world. 
It's not a secret to be kept. It's good news to be shared. How can you share the good news of Jesus Christ with a friend, a neighbor, a loved one? You want pretty feet? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Finally, I don't know what's going on up there. We'll just pretend that didn't happen. I'll just say it. We should soak our souls in God's utterly reliable word. God's promise of deliverance for this city comes true. His promise of judgment for the captain also comes true. And our battle today isn't that different from the Israelites. It's a battle for daily reliance on continual faith in the word of the Lord. The promises of God are utterly reliable. There's a lot of bad news in the world, but we don't need to fear. God's word is true. The end has been written. Jesus comes back. He defeats his enemies. He brings God's people with him, and we reign eternally in heaven. Every word, if God says it, you can take it to the bank. So as we worship together, the refreshing water of the word of God washes us. It cleanses the muck of anxiety and fear. As we dig into the word on a Tuesday morning, the word of God reorients our thinking. It shapes and molds us into an image, holier and more beautiful than we are apart from Christ. Isaiah 55 compels us, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, come and drink. Soak your soul in this book. Let the water of the word wash over you. Fill your lives with the word of God so that when they squeeze you, the word comes out. Because in knowing this book, you know the one who can rescue you. To know this word is to know the word, Jesus Christ. Well, let's take a moment now and respond to the word of God in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now. God, we thank you for your word and the way that this picture gives us a glimpse into the darkness that awaits anyone who doesn't know Christ. Lord, but I also thank you for that beautiful picture of deliverance according to your word. Lord, we sit here thousands of years later relying on the same word, the same promises. But as ones who have received the promises of God in Jesus Christ. 
Lord, help us to live lives and walk worthy of the gospel. To not bite and devour one another. Rather, share news that gives grace to those who hear. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know Christ, that they would turn from their sin and trust him. And I pray this in Jesus' name.